Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Funds. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's program is first quarter of 2017 CIO Perspectives, Regime Shift from Lower for Longer Toward Reflation, and is for institutional and professional investors. Each quarter, the J.P. Morgan Multi-Asset Solutions team holds a two-day-long strategy summit where senior portfolio managers and strategists debate current asset allocation views and establish key global themes for the upcoming quarter. Join Dr. David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist and Head of Global Market Insights Strategy, Michael Hood, Global Strategist of Multi-Asset Solutions, and Jeff Geller, CIO of Multi-Asset Solutions, all for J.P. Morgan Asset Management, as they discuss key themes and implications from their most recent strategy summit. What I want to do is just talk a little bit about where particularly the U.S. economy was on Election Day, what the potential for fiscal stimulus will mean for that economy, and then where that leaves us in terms of a view in the Federal Reserve, and also what's going on with long-term growth. And to sort of sum it up, I think the basic theme is one of a warmer global economy. And the real question is, well, how much warmer? We do expect to see somewhat more growth, somewhat more inflation. But the real really critical issue for investors will be trying to figure out the extent of that over the next year or two. But I thought I would start with a slide. I'm going to use some slides from our guide to the markets. I thought I would start with page 20 just to lay out the backdrop before the election. This has been a very slow expansion. I've always believed that the American economic expansion has been more or less a healthy tortoise rather than a sickly hare. In other words, it has been ambling forward pretty steadily with not much danger of a relapse into recession, but certainly nothing impressive in terms of growth. It had slowed down a lot in the second quarter and was still pretty slow in the third quarter on a year-over-year basis. And the reason for that was uh, primarily two things. First, on a year-over-year basis, energy investment spending is still down significantly. And second, inventories had gone from growing very rapidly to actually shrinking by the second quarter. Now, those drags in the U.S. economy, which were dragging at most significantly in the second quarter, they have begun to ease. And so we got 3.2% growth in the third quarter in terms of GDP growth. And then looking into the fourth quarter and into next year, the economy looks like even before the election, it was pretty healthy in terms of growth. It looked like we were talking about a 2 to 2.5% two economy. If you look at the pieces of aggregate demand on the right-hand side, you can sort of check the boxes. Consumer spending looks fine. We've got a very good improvement in consumer finances. We've got some wage growth. We've got some job growth. We've got some improvement in confidence even before the election. We've certainly got big increases in net worth. Credit's getting a little easier. So overall, consumer spending was growing strongly. Government spending had gone from being a drag on the economy to being a small stimulus as the deficit had begun to rise again. The housing market was continuing to recover, which is a rather an odd thing to say in the eighth year of economic expansion, but it never really recovered properly and still got room to grow. And other investment spending outside of the energy sector has been very weak, but it really does have some room to pick up here. So overall, what we had was actually quite a healthy economy, I think a very underappreciated economy. I'm sure an economic expansion that left a lot of people behind, but nevertheless, an economy that was moving forward pretty steadily and very much in line with, in fact, a little bit above what we think its long-term potential growth rate is. 
Then we had the election, and I just want to point out what this may mean for fiscal policy. We show this on page 25 of the guide. Clearly, there's been a big change in sentiment since the election, and there's a lot of expectations that the new administration is going to achieve various policy changes. And it's reasonable to expect that they will achieve some policy changes because now the Republican Party controls the White House and both houses of Congress. If they're ever going to achieve various items on their agenda, they could well do it or should do it over the next year or two. But the thing I want to point out here is that this could actually amount to a fair amount of fiscal stimulus, depending on how much of Donald Trump's agenda is implemented. And if you think about what was said on the campaign trail in his policy positions, he's going to increase spending on veterans affairs. He's going to increase spending on defense by relaxing the sequester cuts. He's going to introduce a new child care benefit. He's going to cut personal income tax. He's going to cut corporate income tax. He's going to sponsor through tax breaks more infrastructure investment spending. All of these things, and particularly the tax cuts, if they were implemented in the dose that he's talking about, and, and sorry, let me also add, you want to get rid of the estate tax and also get rid of the tax that's going to pay for part of the Affordable Care Act. So if he gets rid of all of these things, you would have a significant increase in increasing the deficit and the debt on the right-hand side of page 25. In fact, uh, various organizations before the election had looked at what this might mean for the debt going out to 2026, and it could potentially push the debt up to 105% of GDP by 2026, assuming that you get a full implementation of the Trump agenda and that it does not noticeably increase the growth rate of the U.S. economy. Now, if you do get better growth out of the economy in general, in terms of long-term potential growth, uh, you may get some tax revenue kick which will uh, reduce the pace at which the debt grows. But certainly it looks like the debt, which is already very high at 77% of GDP and is already expected to go higher to 86% of GDP by 2026, that could well go higher still with the full implementation of the Trump agenda. I believe that it is unwise to assume that it will all be implemented at this stage. I know that there are fiscal conservatives in the House and the Senate who would not want to add that much to the national debt. And I think you'll probably see a compromise. However, I do think that you will see fiscal expansion come out of this. I know that there are some people who want to hold the line and do nothing that won't be deficit neutral. But I think there's also a, a strong constituency in favor of lower corporate taxes, lower state taxes, get rid of the tax for the Affordable Care Act. If you do those tax cuts, you kind of have to do a tax cut for average Americans. And if you do all of that, it's very hard to cut spending enough to actually be deficit neutral. So once you surrender the idea of being deficit neutral, there's no Irish saying that you might as well get hung for a sheep as a lamb. If you're going to decide to push up the deficit, you might as well push it up a lot because you won't get any thanks for being somewhat more prudent than you might have been. Now, in terms of how that affects the economy, I think it will add stimulus to the economy in the second half of next year, assuming a tax bill goes through and spending bills go through sometime in the spring and then helping also in 2018. So it's not immediate stimulus, but it could be significant. I think if you turn to the next page, looking at the unemployment rate, the really crucial issue is we don't really have a lot of workers to match this extra demand. The unemployment rate today is 4.6%, and that is lower than it's been 83% of the time over the last 50 years. There is a lot of talk out there in the blogosphere and by reporters and by politicians that there are millions of unemployed people or underemployed people who can be put to work. I've studied statistics on the US labor market for many years. I don't believe those people exist. 
I think this is, in fact, a very tight labor market. It's very hard to find good people to work. And so as you push the unemployment rate down further, particularly with additional fiscal stimulus, you will see wage growth pick up. And that will add something to inflationary pressures as we go into 2017 and particularly going into 2018. So I think more inflation is likely on the positive side. If you turn to the next page, it does look like earnings are rebounding. These numbers on the left-hand side of page seven of the guide show the operating earnings of the Standard & Poor's, operating earnings per share for the Standard & Poor's 500. And you can see that that third quarter number is basically an actual at this stage. So the rebound is here. We always knew that when oil stopped falling and the dollar stopped rising, profits would rebound. What we've seen in recent weeks is, of course, a further strengthening in oil prices. And I think the two drags on earnings, the dollar and oil, oil was the worst. Oil was responsible for about two-thirds of the decline in profits compared to about one-third for the dollar. So the strengthening that we see in the dollar is going to be something of a drag in earnings, but I think the strengthening in oil prices will be much more of a positive for earnings. And I think earnings will continue to improve in 2017. We could easily see a year-over-year double-digit gain in 2017 in operating EPS. Thereafter, I think earnings will grow more slowly. But for the moment, they've grown pretty rapidly. And I think that gain that we've seen in earnings will be sustained going into 2017. If you turn to the next page, the downside of higher oil prices is higher consumer prices. What we show is the October CPI for headline and core. The headline CPI rate in October was 1.6% year over year. The core was 2.2%. One of the reasons for this is that food and energy prices were essentially flat year over year. We believe that particularly if oil prices hold where they are right now and natural gas prices hold where they are right now, that by January and February of next year, energy prices in general will be up double digits year over year because they crashed this time last year. If that's the case, and if you look at my chart here, the little blue line is going to be above the dark line. In other words, overall inflation will be above core CPI. We think core CPI could be 2.3, 2 2.4% by early next year. The headline CPI should be somewhere in the 25 to 3% range, and that should be enough to push the headline PCE deflator above the core PCE deflator and get it to hit 2% or 2.1% year over year by January or February of next year. All of that is relevant to the Fed's deliberations. The Fed will be meeting today and tomorrow. Tomorrow afternoon, the Fed will put out a statement and they will revise their forecast. And you can see this next page, page 35 of the guide, we have the Fed's forecast for the next few years. Looking at these forecasts, I think they will slightly upgrade expectations of economic growth for 2017, 2018, and 2019, and they will reduce their expectation for the unemployment rate over those years also. I think that both in the statement, in their forecasts, and in Chair Yellen's comments tomorrow, they will basically say, look, we don't know what fiscal policy will be. It could well be that fiscal policy will result in strong growth, lower unemployment, and higher inflation than we currently project. But what we're going to do here is we're going to wait and see what happens. Now, of course, I don't think that Janet Yellen has the ability to force that upon all the participating members of the FOMC. So these numbers might get pushed up more than that in terms of growth. But overall, I think the Fed's position is going to be, we're not going to comment really on fiscal policy. We're not going to do much about it until we see something that is going through Congress. At the moment, we expect that they will raise rates tomorrow. I expect that at the moment they will not make, if you look at the little dot plot on the bottom right-hand side of page 35, I don't expect that they're going to make much change in 
what they expect short-term interest rates to do over the next few years. Not yet, but I think by the time we get around to March and we see a more clear fiscal plan coming through Congress, then they may begin to adjust those expectations upwards. Either way, you know, the Fed's going to raise rates, we think, tomorrow, raise rates at least twice next year, and they could well raise rates four times next year if they think that inflation is picking up and that fiscal policy is more expansionary. You know, one of the crucial questions is, will the Federal Reserve accommodate fiscal expansion by keeping rates low, or will they take the opportunity to reload their monetary guns and normalize interest rates? And I think it's the latter. I think they will try to normalize interest rates so that they're in a position to help the economy the next time it is really threatened by recession. And then finally, on the global economy, we show our PMI heat map. I love this chart on page 47. It's just a very easy way to see what's going on in the global economy. Green is good, red is bad. You can see all the problems the emerging markets had last year and early into this year. But you can see that those problems are gradually easing. Meanwhile, you can see that the developed world is definitely doing better here. In fact, if you look at the global manufacturing PMI index for November at 52.1, that was the strongest number that we'd seen in over two years. Overall, the global economy is picking up here. It's not booming, but it is picking up here. And I think that's part of an overall picture of more warming. You know, if you look region by region, Europe is doing pretty well here, despite a lot of political turmoil. There's always political turmoil in Europe about something, but the overall economy is doing okay. The UK is also doing okay, despite the ghost of Brexit now haunting it. Emerging markets, I think, are being held up by China, deliberately trying to do everything it can do to sustain growth, although the Indians have scored a a bit of an own goal with their currency revolution, which may slow their growth for a little while. But fundamentally, we think that India is going to grow pretty well in the long run. Also, there are problems in emerging markets, but the global economy is picking up. Commodity prices are rising again. So overall, I think what we have here is a global economy with a little bit more growth, a little bit more inflation, and a turn in monetary policy regimes towards a little bit more tightness, particularly as fiscal policy becomes more expansionary in the United States. So that's kind of how we see things as an overall backdrop. And I thought I'd turn it over to Michael Hood to talk a little bit about how they see that from a strategy perspective. Thanks very much, David. With that macro backdrop in mind, we'll now turn, as David said, to how we in multi-asset solutions are interpreting these economic developments through an asset market lens. And I thought I'd start with the most obvious development of the past few months, which is the sell-off we've experienced in government bond markets. And one starting point to make here is that this is really not just about the U.S. election. Rather, the way we see it is that the elections provided impetus for a couple of developments that were already underway. First, David suggested growth expectations have improved, at least at the margin. We already saw an acceleration of global growth in the third quarter of this year, and 2017 forecasts have begun to move higher, helped by expectations for fiscal stimulus. And so that's helped to boost real bond yields. Second, and maybe more importantly, inflation is normalizing. So we've been in a deflation scare for most of the last couple of years. That's now faded. The increase in the oil price is a significant chunk of that, but we're also seeing core inflation moving higher, at least in the U.S., and so inflation break-evens have risen accordingly. And in fact, if you look at the bond market sell-off that we've gone through, the increase in yields has been about 50-50 split between real yields and break-evens, and that's really what's made it so powerful. The previous sell-offs that we've experienced over the last few years have been mostly about either one or the other of these phenomena. And I'll also point out here that inflation expectations are up globally. 
inflation swaps have moved higher across all of the major economies, and they've been doing so since really shortly after the Brexit vote. And that's important given the elevated correlations that we see across government bond markets. So large and sustained moves in treasuries, for example, need to be coming from several places at once and not just one economy. Now, even after the big move that we've had in the last couple of months, we're still fairly unenthusiastic about government bonds, really for two reasons. The first is that, to our mind at least, they still don't look cheap. We talked earlier about real yields and break-evens. Another way of looking at yields, of slicing them up, is to split them into the expected path for the Fed funds rate and the term premium. So we've seen moves in both. And although we'd characterize Fed pricing as now being roughly fair in line with the message that David was sending earlier, the term premium still is very low by historical standards. Now, again, the term premium is a global phenomenon. It's not just about the U.S., but we did see last week that even a mild hawkish surprise from the European Central Bank did spark a further jump in yields globally, and that was connected with a rise in the term premium. Given its level, we still say there appears to be room for that to move noticeably higher over time, and so we don't yet think that genuine value has been created in government bonds. And the second point here is that if you've got an atmosphere where monetary policy is in motion and markets are starting to think about maybe upside inflation rather than downside, you're likely to see somewhat less negative correlation between stocks and bonds. We've seen actually already a little bit of that recently, where the negative correlations weakened, not really like the taper tantrum of 2013, which was an extreme move into positive correlations, but still enough to reduce the diversification benefit of holding government bonds. And therefore, they become a little bit less valuable from a portfolio construction perspective. So under these circumstances, we continue to prefer a tilt toward risky assets, And that view, a lot of which is focused on equities, is reinforced by a couple of factors. First is the pickup in nominal growth that we've been talking about. So combination of a little bit better real growth and then higher inflation. And David has already suggested this point, which is that given that nominal growth is where corporate earnings come from, we think the outlook for profits has improved. And we already see that, as David showed you, in the third quarter data, either from companies or looking at the U.S. GDP figures, which showed a significant increase in profits economy-wide. A second point here is valuations. And again, thinking here in relative terms, so equity markets don't look cheap in absolute terms compared with their own history, but the equity risk premium between stocks and bonds, even after the jump in bond yields, still looks fairly high. The equity risk premiums in the U.S. and Japan have moved down pretty much to the middle of their post-crisis range, but not noticeably below that, and they're still certainly elevated by longer-term standards, and the European equity risk premium is still close to its peak. So we don't see too much room for concern on this front. Now, it does make sense to worry a little bit about equity valuations when inflation is on the rise. We know that historical analysis suggests that when inflation is high, people just pay less stocks, multiples go down. But it appears to be the case that only really genuinely high inflation above 4% or so really starts to crimp the P.E. ratio that investors are willing to pay for stocks. It's really once you get up above 4% or so for inflation where the multiple starts to detract from equity returns. And given that we expect inflation to stay basically in a 2 to 3% range for the time being, we think the benefits of the inflation normalization on earnings are likely to outweigh the costs on valuations. Now, when we look within equity markets, we have shifted our preferences around a little bit in response to the new environment that we've seen. And one way to characterize our current views is that we're now favoring markets that tend to do well in the latter stages of a business cycle. 
Uh, now, by that, I certainly don't mean that we're worried about a recession imminently or even over the course of our tactical investment horizon. We still think the recession risk is pretty low. Instead, what I mean is markets that do well when growth is running fairly hot and when inflation is on the increase. I'll mention two in particular. First is U.S. small caps. Obviously, this market's benefited enormously from the election already, but we think relative valuations remain unchallenging. And more generally, we see the various potential policy changes that are in the offing here, to whatever extent they're implemented, as being relatively favorable for the U.S. and less supportive for the rest of the world. And within that, a tilt towards small cap reflects the possibility of a stronger dollar, which, as we've certainly seen over the last couple of years, is a significant possible negative for the earnings of larger U.S. companies. Small caps, as you'd expect, are just more exposed to domestically focused names as well as financials than the S&P. A second equity market we like now, and here a change from our previous preferences, is Japan. And the view here is really a pretty simple one. The Bank of Japan, with its attempt to cap local bond yields against the backdrop of rising bond yields globally, has managed to hit, maybe partly by luck, on a way to generate sustained yen weakness for the first time in a couple of years. And given the tight connection between Japanese equities and the currency, we think that's a recipe for stock market outperformance as long as you're able to hedge the currency. Now, within the risky asset bucket, earlier this year, we had a very strong preference for corporate credit. And we still like credit, but we've scaled back that tilt a little bit for a couple of reasons. First is valuations. Earlier this year, we were buying credit very cheap to long-term averages, whereas stocks were expensive. And the significant spread tightening over the past several months has eroded that advantage. We don't mind spreads being a little bit tight as long as we expect the U.S. expansion to continue. With interest coverage still okay, we don't see any big worsening of credit quality or spike in defaults unless the economy goes into a recession. But it's just not as obvious a buy from a valuation perspective as it was earlier this year. And second is the growth atmosphere. When the market's nominal growth expectations were quite low, credit was an obvious outperformer for the reasons I mentioned earlier. The outlook for corporate profits, which is what accrues to the equity holders, was muted. As earnings expectations pick up, the likelihood that credit outperforms equities diminishes. Historically, once you get up above, say, 4% or so nominal growth, the credit outperformance over equities flips and equities start to outperform. Let me finish with a quick note on emerging markets. We went into the election with positive views about both EM equity and EM debt, but we've changed our minds uh, to some extent on the latter, the debt side. This is really mostly about duration. EM debt is one of the longer duration credit indices out there. The credit spread loss in EM debt over the past month has been pretty modest, but EM debt is quite long duration. And the damage to returns from higher bond yields has been pretty severe. And as a result, we'd expect some continued outflows from this asset class and prefer to hold U.S.-focused credit. On the equity side, we're certainly conscious of the campaign rhetoric about trade, the more recent exchanges we've seen about China. And we certainly regard these as representing potentially significant downside risk to the asset class. For now, though, we're focusing a little more on the improvement that we're already seeing in EM profitability, which has been apparent in the past several months, and that reflects the somewhat better growth atmosphere that David was talking about. With valuations also still supportive, we're therefore okay with maintaining a cautiously positive view on EM equity for the time being, but do stand willing to change that assessment if rhetoric moves closer to becoming reality. So that's a tour of the asset class level views, and now I'll pass it over to Jeff Geller to talk about how this all is coming together in portfolios. 
Uh, sure. Thank you, Michael. I think, as Michael pointed out, clearly the shift since the election is a shift toward pro-growth with certainly a benefit for the U.S. versus the rest of the world, given the impact of the policies out of a Trump administration. And I'd say, given what we know right now in terms of you know, possible infrastructure spend, tax cuts, and a more benign regulatory environment, at a minimum, we would expect to create a bump of roughly a half percent in real GDP for next year. The question is, does it go beyond that in stimulating growth, which is something both David and Michael referred to? At one plus percent growth, it's not only good for the U.S., but it's good for equities globally. So while, as Michael said, we've leaned more heavily into overweight positions in the U.S., specifically small cap, where you see two positive dots, we ultimately think that this is good for global equities more broadly, which is one reason why we've even maintained our overweight to emerging market equities, even though there's a natural headwind through a period where rates are rising in the U.S. and also you're seeing a stronger dollar. The other thing that's gone on that I think has very broad applicability across our portfolios is that when we begin to talk about a pro-growth environment, we're obviously pushing off the probability of recession to being much lower for 2017 and early 2018. And while we may not be looking for credit to outperform equities as sharply as they did, we definitely would prefer credit versus government bonds. And the two areas that we've been emphasizing in portfolios have been both long corporates and high yield, again, sticking with the theme of the U.S. versus the rest of the world. And the place that we've seen that really very dramatically as far as the shifts we've made have been in the liability-aware portfolios that we manage. We've moved more heavily away from government bonds, which was actually a process that we began doing aggressively in August and September. We've only continued to move further in that direction, away from treasuries in favor of credit, both high yield and corporate bonds. Duration is obviously, this is a big shift for us. And there are two reasons where duration has been very relevant. One is it's obviously at the liability aware mandates for corporate DB plans. That's important because in managing those portfolios, historically, we've kept the duration hedges fairly constant, feeling that the risks were just very, very much skewed to the downside if rates went down. And where we were taking active risk and more active decisions was more in the composition of the growth assets. As we're heading into a period where we think that rates are going to normalize and that term premiums globally are shifting up and that real yields are shifting up, this is for the first time in, I'd say, the last six, seven years that we've actually, we're running with lighter hedges across our liability-aware portfolios, which is a meaningful shift for us. And I think we're able to do that without risk going up materially because over time we've diversified away from equities into other asset classes, whether it's high yield, core real estate, and even where we can access alternatives into private equity or private credit. But to the extent that we're diversifying away from equities, it gives us a little bit more wiggle room in expressing a view on duration right now, which I think is a big shift for us. The other place where, I guess, interest rate sensitivity and holding treasuries has been important is in running our multi-asset class portfolios. We have relied on the negative correlation between bonds, specifically treasuries versus risk assets. 
in terms of overall portfolio context and managing downside risk. And as uh, those correlations are drifting to be a bit more positive, as Michael referenced, but also as we're holding less overall exposure in government bonds, we have to think about other ways that we're going to manage portfolios, specifically those that are less concerned about tracking versus a, a policy portfolio, but are also giving us an objective of delivering a better investment outcome when we're managing downside risk as well. And there, I think, as we're reducing our exposure to government bonds, a lot of our attention has been what other asset classes would we logically shift into that we think can deliver equity-like returns with a bit less downside risk. High yield certainly qualifies core real estate. And in portfolios where we can use options, uh, we would consider replacing some of our long equity exposure with long calls to introduce some conditional exposure should equity sell off. So again, I think as we're lightening up on Treasury exposure, we really have to revisit how we are uh, thinking about managing downside risk. And the last bit, which really hasn't changed post the Trump administration, is that the long-term forecasts for returns are coming down, as implied by our long-term capital market assumptions. And I don't think that's changed. I mean, you might be front-loading some of the returns, but we're still forecasting that a 60-40 portfolio is going to deliver something closer to 5.5, down from 6%. And to the extent that we can, where we have that flexibility and we're shooting for higher return targets in excess of 75 to 8% net to clients, a focus continues on where we can earn liquidity premiums picking our partners and the deals that we invest in very selectively where we've done both private equity as well as private credit. So that would be an ongoing focus for us in those portfolios. You've been listening to J.P. Morgan Fund's production of Insights, the program that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Thanks for listening. The views contained herein are not to be taken as an advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given, and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of their legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications, and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks, the value of investments, and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield may not be a reliable guide to future performance. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other EU jurisdictions by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL.
in Hong Kong by JF Asset Management Limited or JP Morgan Funds Asia Limited or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited in India by JP Morgan Asset Management India Private Limited in Singapore by JP Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited in Taiwan by JP Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited in Japan by JP Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association Japan the Japan Investment Advisors Association Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency registration number Kanto Local Finance Bureau Financial Instruments Firm number 330 in Korea by JP Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited in Australia to wholesale clients only as defined in section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001 CTH by JP Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited ABN 5514383208 AFSL 376919 in Brazil by Banco JP Morgan SA in Canada for institutional clients use only by JP Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated and in the United States by JP Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated and JP Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated both members of FINRA SIPC and JP Morgan Investment Management Incorporated in APAC distribution is for Hong Kong Taiwan Japan and Singapore for all other countries in APAC to intended recipients only copyright 2016 JP Morgan Chase and Company all rights reserved recorded December 13th 2016